Hello, and welcome to The Promise of Discovery, a podcast where members and investigators at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center talk about their research in intellectual and developmental disabilities. Good afternoon. My name is Amy Whitelaw. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and I'm the Associate Director of Research here at TRIAD, which is the Treatment and Research Institute for Autism Spectrum Disorders at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I'm so pleased to be here today with my colleague, Mr. John Stobitz, and we're very excited to tell you about some of our work together. Say hello, John. Hi, Amy, and hi to everybody listening. Great to be here today. Will you um, explain a little bit about your role here and some of what you do so our listeners understand who you are? Sure. So uh, I'm the Associate Director of Behavior Analysis for Triad. And so within that role, we've worked in a few different contexts, but most of my work since I came on board, I think um, early 2013, has been working on supporting students in schools. And so some of that's been about addressing their um, academic needs or communication needs, but a lot of the work that I've been focused on the last few years has been about trying to address their behavioral needs. And so that can be things like trying to help teachers understand ways they can maybe prevent a child becoming escalated when they're in the classroom or helping to teach children some alternative behaviors that will get their needs met without them uh, missing out on opportunities or um, getting in situations that could be dangerous for them or others. And then trying to teach school staff how they can respond when they see signs of escalation to try to bring things to a therapeutic, but also a, a non-disruptive uh, conclusion or resolution so that children can get back to learning and enjoying school. So that's kind of the theme of our work. <laughs> I guess. So you said that you're an expert in behavior analysis. And so what you were just talking about, is that behavior analysis or is it something different? I would say that those are there's there's a lot of different things that behavior analysts work on, but I do think that there's been a lot of work that behavior analysts have done over the years in autism and work with folks with intellectual or developmental disabilities. And I think that what we've just found is that in some cases, uh, individuals who are not neurotypical uh, will sometimes present with uh, maybe having a behavior that someone else might not have or uh, needing to learn a behavior that, that maybe a neurotypical peer might have. And so I think that at least in the field of special education, which is where um, a good bit of my formal training uh, came from, there is kind of this idea of how will we teach a child things that they don't already know how to do. And I think behavior analysis is a nice context for that. And when I hear the word neurotypical, as a psychologist, I think about people that experience the world kind of, for lack of a better way of explaining it, I guess, in the way that kind of the popular culture expects us to experience the world, right? Or the traditional educational system or, you know, the, the professionals or people that we encounter. And, um, you know, over time, I have started to think about diagnoses like autism spectrum disorder or intellectual and developmental disabilities um, as part of a, a neurodivergent world, right? Where we might have someone that experiences the world in a more typical way, but then people that experience it in different ways, which is not in and of itself something that necessarily needs to be treated. You know, is that kind of how you're thinking about that as well? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that there, there have been um, within behavior analysis and 
maybe within other disciplines, I think sometimes there has been a goal of trying to normalize the experiences or skill sets. And I'm, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that didn't uh, didn't come through in what I was saying a couple of moments ago. Because honestly, oh no, no, not a bit. I'm, <laughs> I, I, my my take on it is looking at things. I mean, when when we chat with um, some of the educators or families we work with, we want to be clear. Our big priorities are things like engagement. So, for instance, if a child needs to to um, have experiences with with peers, with friends, if they need to learn about numeracy and literacy, that that their behavior is not getting in the way of those sorts of social or academic opportunities. And then with respect to safety, it's also there's just a lot of the children we work with where they're hurting themselves or maybe they're they're leaving a safe space and moving into unsafe spaces for them, such as leaving a school building and things like that. And so, um, our, yeah, I, I would feel like it was um, not, not a good goal, not an actionable goal, and, and really not helpful if we're trying to make sure all kids are the same. I think that that's, right. that's, that's, that's uh, I don't think anybody thinks that's a good idea, but I want to be clear that's not that's not what I hope behavior analysis can bring no. to uh, the neurodivergent world. No, that's that that that's excellent clarification. Thanks. I was wondering maybe if everybody listening kind of understood some of that terminology because for me it's a little bit newer. Although I, I think that within the self advocate world, that's been a, a strong voice and and theme. Um, very appropriately for a long time. And it kind of feeds into something I wanted to bring up as part of our talk today. So you and I are going to be talking about this new system and approach for behavioral assessment and intervention that we've been working on for years now at this point. And I really wanted to let our listeners know that we might use phrases like um, problem behavior or challenging behavior and John, I think you summarized it really well when you were talking about behaviors that place a person at risk, right? So behaviors that make it hard for a person to participate in the community or remain in their home or might even threaten their physical safety. And so really wanted to be clear that as we're talking about um, behavioral change within this system that, that we're describing that um, just like you said, John, we're not trying to somehow train people to fit into a neurotypical box um, in, in any way. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. I think that I think you said it in a way that's more clear and eloquent. But yeah, I, I think that um, and, and a big part of that, I, I think I saw um, someone had posted a visual that was kind of some guidelines for developing goals. And what really came through, I like one of the things that they were saying is, what, what are the, the individual I'm trying to help? What are their goals? And what can I do to help them get further down the road towards what their vision is for life? And I think that, I mean, that necessarily to me doesn't imply uh, trying to normalize or you know have people have a common experience because we are all headed down different paths. So I think that um, well-intentioned behavior analysis such as it exists, I think should be not only individualized in the techniques and the, the tactics we use, but in just considering that they're truly individualized goals and that anything that we're going to apply is with the intentions of meeting the goals that have either been expressed by the learner, the child, adolescent, or adult we're trying to help, or if we need more information from, from caregivers and the people around them who know them best. That's a perfect segue, John, talking about needing more information. Um, because that really relates to the, the project that we're doing together. So 
Um, as a quick summary, this project uses wearable technologies. So kind of similar to the smartwatches that you know I'm wearing right now, um, custom apps and uh, advanced computational approach called machine learning that I will not attempt to explain for you today, but it's, it's a way of harnessing the power of computers to look at data and patterns in data in new and predictive ways. So using sensors, apps, machine learning to help get us information, right? And to, to help understand how we might approach and treat problem behavior. But, you know, John, how the heck are we doing that? <laughs> well, um, I guess that uh, just as a, as, a, as a brief, I don't know if this anecdote will help people understand where this is coming from, but I think there, there was a conversation. I think it was, I, I had met you before, Amy, but it was the, kind of the beginning of our work together and yeah. in a room with Dr. Sarkar, who he's just been a huge player in this group. And the conversation was something along the lines of, if we were able to gather this kind of data, like, you know, understanding more about what a person's body is doing, how could that help us if we were yeah. trying to, uh, you know, help someone for whom behavior has been flagged as a concern or someone's escalation has been a concern. And I think where my, um, where my imagination went, and I think that others, you know, on our team, including you was, well, if we had a little more advanced notice that someone is about to start to escalate, then um, there's just, there's a lot of, uh, options, whether you're a parent or a teacher or a therapist that become available if someone has time to prepare or time to react or time to help someone in a moment that can be challenging. And so I, I think that um, I never have considered this stuff to be possible before we started working together, Amy, or before we started working with, with uh, Nalan John and his students, because I just didn't, I just had no concept of whether it'd be possible or not. And then I think that we just collectively maybe suspended our disbelief <laughs> and thought, you know, is it, let, let's just, just see if it's possible. Let's see if we can predict escalation. Um, and that, that's been the journey that we've been on, I guess. Sometimes it feels like suspending disbelief is at least 10% of the scientific process, right? But you're right. I remember that meeting really well. And um, Dr. Sarkar, unfortunately, couldn't be with us here today, but he's the chair of mechanical engineering at Vanderbilt University. And I had been working with him for about a decade, looking at different ways of applying technology like robots and virtual reality to promoting skills, um, especially for people on the autism spectrum. But then, like you said, um, some new work had come out showing that we could use this type of sensing technology to understand when some of these very significant or impairing behaviors were about to occur. So we met as a team across psychology and behavior analysis and engineering and thought, well, if we were gonna design a study of this, what would we do and why? And what would we hope that it would do for, for a patient or a student or for the behavior provider that was working with them. And that was where a lot of your expertise really came into play because you said, aha, I know exactly what I would like to make better. So can you tell me a little bit about those things that we're hoping to improve upon potentially as part of our work? 
Absolutely. So I think that there were a couple of things we were, um, I'm, I'm not an expert, but some of the other studies or this is something that's been worked on for, for much longer than I've been kind of part of, uh, part of this space. And when I would look at some of the studies, I found they were able to get some good prediction, but sometimes the challenges were and them feeling like the predictive power wasn't as high as they wanted, or that it took a long time or a lot of resources to build the model, or that while they were trying to understand what the child's body was doing, they had to watch the child um, enter into really severe uh, episodes of behavior that sometimes might result in a lot of injuries. I remember reading one article and doing the math and realizing this child had to punch themselves in the face 25 times oh in gosh. order for them to figure out how to predict this. And I thought, wow, as a, as a parent, as just a person who's worked with this population for my entire adult life, I just, I, that would make me feel terrible if we're saying, come to this experiment. We're going to learn something very important about you or your child but you're gonna leave with your face covered in bruises and contusions, uh, that that's the cost. So, so. It's, not, it's not even necessarily about getting more information or making a better system. It's, it's also about potentially improving safety for everyone that's involved in that assessment and intervention process. Absolutely, and I think some of the studies I looked at, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to disrespect any of the, the fantastic work other folks have done, but sometimes it was, you know, someone would be inpatient for 24 hours and they could get them to wear tech and kind of be under observation. And what I realized is that if we're going to try to build models that can work in homes and clinics and schools, um, if we can get it done faster, there could be a little bit, maybe a few more people who will sign up <laughs> to, uh, to go through that. So that was, that was on my mind. Another thing is um, uh, my wife, uh, Dr. Joey Stalbitz has done a lot of work on at Vanderbilt on observational methods. And she is one of she has imparted a lot of lessons to me, but one of the things she'd said is that the amount of observation you need to understand something a lot of times has to do with how structured the context is. So if you just are looking at what happens without any particular um, structure to what's happening, let's say for a, a person who presents with problem behavior, you need lots and lots and lots of observation to get the picture. But if you structure the context, if you use uh, a structured set of procedures, you can, you can get data that is representative in less time. And so with the assessment model that we've ultimately landed on, I think it's one that kind of brings that idea to bear and that in an hour, we're able to get information that as predictive or more predictive than what other models have gotten in say 24 hours. Wow. And so at these sessions, mm -hmm. I know that in the first version of this work, Dr. Sarkar, um, and his student, Kevin, um, worked hard to develop a new type of wearable system. So in its first version, it looked like a hoodie. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And it had motion sensors inside so that we could track a person's body movement. And then we were also tracking... Um, heart rate, things like how much a person was sweating at the time, um, movement around the room. But then, so like you said, context is really important, right? And so what's the piece that links all of that other kind of sensor-based data to the actual reality of what you as the therapist is doing? Well, absolutely. And there's, there's some technical terms that Kevin's used, but I think for our listeners, I think what I'll just say is we were looking for that link between if a person's watching the child and they're marking 
it, the child is objectively upset now. We can see signs that they're upset. And they're upset starting here, and they were still upset for 30 seconds, and now here they're calm again. That then if we could mark those observable signs of agitation and then look to that data that Kevin and Nalanjan were able to harvest and integrate and see what were those different data streams from the sensors? What were they saying during that 30 seconds where you know, the parent witnessing it was saying, ooh, they're not happy right now. And an analyst was seeing it and saying, they're not happy. And that that, that was marked as, as a objectively um, problematic time, a stressful time for the child. And, and so how we got there was by modifying an assessment. And this assessment's had a couple different names. Um, it's a type of functional analysis. And if people are listening to this, the idea behind a functional analysis is uh, traditionally, it's a method of trying to understand uh, why a behavior is occurring and to systematically manipulate the things that you think are making the behavior happen to test the hypothesis. Do I actually know that this is the thing that sets off the behavior and this is the thing that turns it off? So maybe an example of that would be um, if my son is playing on his iPad and I'm pretty sure that if I take his iPad away, he's going to get really mad. And then I take his iPad away and he gets really mad, but I give it back and then he calms down again. Exactly. Is that an that, example? That, that is absolutely it. Okay. Yeah, that would be, that would be a, a fairly, uh, um, traditional, what a traditional kind of part of a functional analysis might look out if someone had that hypothesis you just expressed. And so, um, we, we have used uh, for this experiment uh, a relatively new format for functional analysis um, that is it's currently being called the practical functional assessment or the interview informed synthesized contingency analysis. It's a mouthful either way, but people can look it up if they want to PFA or ISCA, I-I-S-C-A, it's the same, the same thing. And the idea behind these is rather than, as you said, kind of a more specific, let's just remove the iPad, we'll, we'll interview the family and get an idea of what are all the things that they feel go together within kind of that triggering context. What are all the things that, you know, I'll literally be asking the parents something like, if your child had just been escalated, how could I calm them down quickly? What would really get things back to the place where they're going to feel happy and relaxed and engaged or, or have the potential to do so? And so we end up with, it is truly individualized, but um, it's within these contexts, like within our experiment, oftentimes, especially for our very young learners, it's been some context of interrupting the play they have and say, ask them to help clean up the toys or something like that, or uh, leaving a play area and coming to sit at a table so we can you know, do something more structured or do something that's adult directed. And so it's not particularly important to me that I know for this particular experiment, whether they were most upset about the fact that I took the iPad away or that I said, put the action figures away. But the bottom line is when we do things this way, we tend to see signs of escalation pretty quickly. And when, yeah. just as you expressed, once we see signs of escalation and we give them back what they want, we are oftentimes able to, to bring peace within seconds of that event. And that relates to another topic I wanted to talk about with you today, which was as we have started writing up and publishing on, and then now we're recently funded by the National Science Foundation to actually do this work in partnership with North Carolina State University, which is incredibly exciting. But along the way, we've gotten some really interesting and important feedback related to some of the ethics of this work and how we approach 
the ethics of using wearable sensors or um, trying to, I guess, change behavior and promote safety, right? And so I guess I was hoping to hear from you about your thoughts around some of the ethics of this kind of new stage of technology and, and how at least we're proposing to use it within what we plan to do. Sure. Well, I think for one thing, um, I, th I think that whenever we create a new technology, uh, it's we have to be really careful that even if we create it with good intentions, if we're creating something that can be used for something that's problematic, um, that we, we do bear responsibility for misuse, I think, as well as intended use. Um, I think our intended use, my intended use, is for us to look at evidence-based interventions for addressing behavior and try to enhance those, make them easier, make them more efficient and effective, um, maybe make sure that um, whether it's a parent or, or a therapist or teacher, that maybe someone with less experience and expertise can succeed. Um, so I, so that's, that's one of the values that I'd like to bring to this. I think another is if we think about the, the values of uh, safety and um, learner preference and learner autonomy and dignity as really being foremost, then I think that's gonna be equally as important. So for instance, I don't like the idea of uh, requiring that anybody wear sensors if they don't want to. I don't think this should right. be something where someone's kind of manhandled into some outfit because it's time for you to wear your sensors or that this is used as some sort of, I think there's been sci-fi movies where, oh, okay, arresting someone before a crime is committed. And I just, I hate the idea of people, you know, doing anything that's aversive or pejorative because, you know, the sensors told us that it's time to pull the trigger on something that is, you know, dangerous or, or even just traumatizing or scary for the, the individual involved. Um, my hope is that in most cases that at least the, the kind of context, Amy, that we've discussed is, you know, is this something where if, uh, if we knew that a child wasn't getting the attention they needed, if we knew that it was, that they needed a break, that right. if a, if a teacher or parent was pinged with a notification that they could proactively help that child get that, what we might consider to be a reinforcer in that context without the child having to act out, without them having to ask for it, but they could just get it, which is non-contingent reinforcement is a very well-evidenced practice for improving behavior. I think on, on the other hand, there's so many uh, interventions that are around making sure that the child has motivation to communicate and then prompting or showing them how they can communicate to get their needs met. The challenge with that is, <laughs> You're kind of putting the words in someone's mouth if you're prompting them to say something you're not certain if they're motivated but i think this is a tool that could help us to understand oh this child's not happy with how things are going right now i can tell because the sensor tells me so so let me remind them that they can ask for that ipad back or let me remind them this they can absolutely ask for a break i don't know if, is that getting to kind of the, the ethical end yeah. of it or, or no, no I, don't know. I think that's very well said one goal that i have for this work too not in the short term as part of this grant, but maybe for the next grant is, um, so we've developed an app that helps the therapist, right? And helps the parent input information about what's happening during the session. But um, I would love in the future to see an app that people can wear or use themselves, right? And so 
the idea of, well, maybe it starts with an app that alerts a parent. They can then coach a child through whatever calming or relaxation or behavioral strategy they're working on with their therapist. But then promoting independence as that child gets older to be able to use those strategies on their own, again, based autonomously on, um, on what an app has said. I, I think that's an excellent extension. And I think that that if even if I'm talking about, oh, this would remind an adult to remind a child, well, do we can we get to a point where we don't need that adult to be part of that that chain? I mean, my my smartwatch reminds me to breathe if I seem stressed. It reminds me to walk around if I've been sitting too long. And so um it doesn't seem like that far of a leap, I guess, technologically anymore compared to where we were even when we started having these conversations a few years ago. Um, I, I wanted to say too, that getting back to this point of ethical issues and what is or isn't appropriate to use with different populations of individuals is that as part of this next phase of funded work, an important component of that is actually getting input not just from therapists and caregivers, but also from people with autism or with intellectual or developmental disabilities themselves. So as part of refining the sensor design to think about comfort, sensory sensitivity, whether something is too obvious for them to feel comfortable wearing it in a setting like a classroom. Um, then after actually going through the protocol and experiencing it a few times, you know, what did they like? What did they not like? Were there things that were less okay than other things? And then really using that feedback to change what we do as scientists and as clinicians. Um, because as, as you've said, developing things that seem good on the surface, it, it might not seem good to other people based on other perspectives, right? And we don't want to try to design something from the outside, but instead take that input from the people that it's sexually designed for, whether they have autism or intellectual disability or other trouble regulating their mood, right? That's the population of, of individuals that really, they really matter to me, right? As a clinician and as a scientist, and that's why I do this work, but um, it's certainly not meant to single out or be limited to even um, one diagnosis or one one profile. I, I agree. And I, I think that um, there's been some, some recent procedures, for instance, within behavior analysis where people have said, oh, well, you know, for instance, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that to a language abled person, like along the lines of like, that person's going to tell you it's not cool for you to you know, do that to me. And I, I really struggle with the rationale that only if someone can protest, will we assume that they have a message of discomfort and not feeling okay with what's happening. Uh, so I like the idea of us reaching out to those people who can give us clear feedback to maybe simulate what we would hear from other folks who maybe don't have the, um, have the opportunity to, to tell us you know, this makes me feel awkward, or I, you know, I don't, I, I don't like the idea of me wearing a, a behavior outfit that other kids yeah. are going to look at and say, like, I, I don't know, is, is, 
is that kid okay? Is there something wrong with them? And that's really not a message that anybody needs to be um, hearing or experiencing. No. And another thing about this approach and this technology that gives me hope is the idea that it could be used across settings to increase the efficiency of some of these pretty complicated and time intensive and also costly procedures that can be hard to access in many parts of our state in particular. Um, but the ability to, to put those tools and that, that sensitivity of measurement um, into the hands of the providers that are really working hard to help kids be successful. I, I agree, and I, I'm really excited. I'm particularly. I was already. Ex I was already very excited about this line of inquiry, but I think that the this latest grant that that we have at our disposal. I just think there's some really exciting places that this could take us over the next four years. I think for one thing. Um, and talking to some of the folks on the engineering side who've been responsible for purchasing some of the gear we have, this has to be something that's affordable. This has to be something where, you know, a clinic or a school could actually afford it. It has to be something that would do the job over the hours necessary to actually be helpful. Um, and that it gets the right kind of data flowing at the right time. It has to be reliable. So I'm, I'm glad for that tech stuff to be worked out. I'm also really glad for our part that the themes you were just mentioning for us to do an evaluation over the course of the next four years and does this actually help the child? Are we actually going to be able to um, keep them at a more uh, safe and calm state if we are getting the notifications and responding to them according to a protocol versus business as usual within, albeit a therapeutic and evidence-based context? And, and as you were alluding to, are, you know, are, we able to get, are we able to get some therapeutic gains even faster? There's, I, I gotta tell you, some of the therapies that I've been involved with there's so much time and bandwidth trying to check and double check, you know, is the child calm enough? Is the child happy? Is this really what they want? Is this the time for us to do a next learning, our next learning trial because motivation is there? Um, like I have recorded Zooms with teams where there's just constant back and forth of us trying to like take the temperature of um, where the learner is. And I, I really like the idea of this helping us to, you know, wait and take time when needed and move ahead yeah. when we're ready. And I think we're just going to end up uh, getting more learning in when that's the objective of a session um, with better information. John, I think that we are almost out of time today. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about this research or topic? Well, I guess I'd like to kind of uh, put a question back to you. I feel like you're someone who's who's had a lot of training and experience, not only in psychology, but a lot of exposure to behavior analysis and, and to, you know, as you said, a decade's worth of work with Lanjan. I'm curious from your perspective, do you feel like this is uh, indicative of directions that you've wanted this to go in? Is this, do you feel like this is part of a, a what could be a long road ahead or what are your thoughts on it? I'm incredibly excited about this work. To be honest, I really love the potential of this type of technology to give us as treating providers or as family members valuable information about the emotional or the behavioral states of our kids or of our patients. I love the idea as well about developing new and novel systems for promoting independence in that emotion regulation or in those behavioral choices. Um, and I'm excited about the possibility, not only of the work 
having meaningful impact for youth within this therapeutic context, but being able to expand it upward along the age range and out into the community, um, again, to promote inclusion and well-being. Um, in general, I think that automated approaches to measurement, so using things like sensors or other technological approaches to gather data is a big part of the future in general for all of us, right? Um, the internet of things, if I'm using that appropriately, I mean, that's here and that's happening. And I love the fact that this work is giving us a chance to have an impact on that future in a way that's really inclusive of stakeholder voices to really promote that forward in what I hope is a positive way. And if it's not a positive way, I'm excited that I'll get a chance to hear that right on the front end before I push something forward that isn't going to meet the, the needs of, of the, the patients that I care about. I think those are excellent sentiments. I, I, I guess, um, I guess something that that I maybe I haven't said, but I'd, I'd like to is that um, in talking to Pablo Juarez, who's our director, he he was making a comment. We were talking about this the other day that there's a bit of a history, maybe not just in behavior analysis, maybe it's in science in general, that sometimes we do things because we can without thinking about whether we should. And I'm really fortunate we have folks like you who are, you know, um, where it clearly is your value that we need to make sure that what we're doing is what's right and what's helpful and that we hopefully can do better maybe than, than, than we've done or than, than maybe our collective fields have done in the past about, there, there is, I think, a bit of a seductiveness to, I mean, we're, we're onto a model here that gathers data rapidly, that's highly predictive, that seems to be really promising from a technological standpoint but I think that one of the big challenges for us that we've, you've talked about here within this, this podcast is us getting it right ethically, I think is gonna be maybe just as hard. <laughs> and um, I'm excited to be on that journey together. As am I, and have to give a lot of credit to the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center itself, um, not just because they're, they're hosting the podcast, but because having been here a decade now, that persistent influence and, and family and individual voice that is threaded throughout the mission and, and the work has, I, I feel fortunate that that has shaped these collaborations that we've had. It has been an underpinning of so much of our work. And to be in a place again, where we can have the psychologists and the behavior analysts, and then oh my gosh, the engineers, right? And let's make this thing and do this thing and, and see how it goes. It's just a really exciting opportunity and um, just really excited about the work and, and grateful to give it a try and grateful for your expertise, John. We could not be doing this without you and all of your right input. Right back at you. No, right back at you. It's been, yeah, I, I mean, we always talk about how great interdisciplinary work is, but I think this is just such a great example of it because I, I think without any of the players, we wouldn't have been able to accomplish what we have. And I think that that's where we end up with kind of a leg up, honestly, on some of the other, uh, some of the other folks who've tried to work in this space is if they're missing one of these pieces, it's harder. We were zooming with the team last week where they've just been focusing on using 
the information on skin conductance and sweat and so on. And they're, um, they were like, we really want, they like looked at our paper, like we want the sensors you have because it, it looks more <laughs> predictive. And I was like, well, luckily we have these engineers who are able to invent this stuff and I figure know. out the hardware and figure out the software. And, and it was just for me, a good reminder of how privileged we are to have uh, those sorts of resources on our, on our team, that expertise, honestly. Thank you again for talking with me, John. This was great. Really appreciate you being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is great. Thank you for listening to The Promise of Discovery. Be sure to visit the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center website at vkc.vumc.org to learn more about today's episode. And tune in next time for more on the innovative research and intellectual and developmental disabilities from the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center.